This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Healthcare system in the United States is ailing, and it's in need of a massive value-based transformation. While we are increasingly polarized in our politics, there's one issue on which most Americans agree. Our healthcare system is fundamentally broken, and despite spending more per capita on healthcare than any other country, Americans are worse in health with lower life expectancies, higher hospital admissions, and at greater risk of suicide and maternal mortality compared to peer nations. And this is largely because our healthcare model has been focused on sick care, aimed at addressing acute or chronic conditions rather than preventative health maintenance. And we've increasingly placed greater value on specialty care over primary care. And if we're to write the course and seize this historic moment, to deliver care that's more patient-centered and financially accountable for outcomes, we must unleash the potential of massively powerful primary care. Listeners, this week on The Race to Value, you're going to learn about Southeast Primary Care Partners, or SPCP. They're an independent primary care MSO committed to upholding the independence, innovation, and collaboration of primary care physicians with the ultimate goal of transforming healthcare and achieving true value-based care everywhere. Eric Lyle is the CEO, president, and co-founder of Southeast Primary Care Partners. And joining him is Craig Warland, the chief development officer for SPCP. And these two industry leaders are truly paving the way for a revitalization of primary care in the Southeast, and they're leading a value journey that we're excited to share with you this week. Well, it's another great episode of The Race to Value. We're here to support your value journey in transformation, and we wouldn't be here without your support. And if you wanted to support the podcast, please subscribe to our newsletter. We'd love to have you leave a review or a five-star rating if you're so inclined on Apple Podcasts. And again, please tell your, your colleagues out there that are in a value journey to tune in to the race to value. So without further delay, let's go ahead and hear from Eric Lyle and Craig Warland as they join us this week in the race to value. Eric and Craig, welcome to the Race to Value. I'm really excited to, to talk about the work that you're doing in primary care transformation. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Uh, thank you. We're, we're, we're excited as well. This is a passion for us, as, as you know, and we're excited to, to tell you a little bit about why it's such a passion for us. Well, gentlemen, as we start our conversation today, I'd like to hear about the value journey you've embarked on at Southeast Primary Care Partners. SPCP is a primary care MSO focused on supporting PCPs and orienting healthcare in the Southeast towards value. And your network of primary care practices was, was founded in 2021 and it's based in Alpharetta, Georgia. And in the last year, SPCP has grown from 14 to 36 locations from 60 to 150 employed providers. You're currently managing over 50,000 lives and risk arrangements and supporting 800 plus affiliated providers. And you're managing over 200,000 unique patient encounters annually. And I know primary care is a personal calling for the both of you. And Southeast Primary Care Partners was founded with a commitment to primary care partnership. And you're providing the expertise and the support that's needed to help grow the primary care community in this emerging value economy. 
So can you discuss your personal why and how that informs your leadership and value transformation at SPCP? And we'd also love to hear about the value journey that you're on and where you see the company being positioned to succeed in the future of healthcare delivery in this country. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Eric. This is Eric as well. Um, and I'll start this, and then Craig, you can feel free to jump in and talk about your passion and your why. I've spent the last 35 years of my life in healthcare. Uh, I was in the Air Force for 20 years, where I led and participated in the leadership of hospital systems, military hospital systems. From there, I went to work for a few payers. From there, I went to Optum to work in the care delivery side. Um, and I've had, so I've got a, a pretty good background in terms of being able to understand, and I've seen a lot of things related to healthcare. And over the course of my career, I realized that the primary driving force for creating value in the system really resides with primary care. Going back to the very beginning of time when healthcare was started, primary care doctors were out there creating value for their patients, doing in-home care, bringing them in, trading for chickens, that kind of thing. And over the years, we've kind of lost that you know, personal touch to where primary care providers are driving that value in the system. And, and so our, our passion is about bringing it back to the primary care physicians. We are very focused on supporting our primary care doctors and mid-levels. And that's kind of the way we wake up every day is what can we do to help make their lives better, give more data, make it easier for them to see their patients, make it easier for them to take care of their patients in a meaningful way, in a comprehensive way. And we think by doing that, it really drives value for the system. So whereas Eric, a lot of people We'll, we'll say, hey, you're, you're leading a primary care group. We don't really see it that way. We think we're leading a, and um, supporting a primary care group of physicians, but it's really more about the way we position primary care as leading the healthcare system for the communities that we're in. We think that the value is being created by the primary care physicians that are part of our group. And we think of ourselves as a healthcare company, not really a primary care company because of all the things we're doing. This is Craig. Jumping into healthcare was very personal for me in that um, I really had not experienced a lot of healthcare. I was your typical American, you know, healthy mid-20s male who only went to the only went to the hospital when when he couldn't stop bleeding or um, you know, the the bone was sticking out. And uh, and then I had my daughter and she had some significant special needs and we were spending, you know, days and weeks kind of navigating a really complicated and pretty fragmented system. And so this is when I was in the military and as making the transition out of the Marines into the civilian world, I, I really became somewhat captivated with, you know, what's going on with this healthcare system. We're spending more than any other country in the world. Um, but I know from the experience through my daughter, it's, it's not the highest quality. And so um, really felt like if I could devote a career to looking at this and helping support the caregivers and, 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 reworking the system so that it was more patient-centered and, and made more sense from a both economics and just from an operation standpoint for the patients, then that would be a good way to spend a career. So um, left as I left the military, went into uh, hospital administration and, and in, within the hospital world, I was very fortunate to work with really strong um, hospital operators and, and a great group of physicians um, that were, were doing the best they could to take care of their community. But what you realize very quickly if you spend any time looking at healthcare economics is the fee-for-service economic system is, is not designed to do what I got into healthcare to do, which is, is really make a, a more streamlined, more efficient process for the patient that is oriented on keeping the patient well, not just treating the patient when they're sick. And so for that reason, I, through a mutual contact, had met Eric he kind of shared his vision for, for what he was doing here at SBCP. It was an opportunity for me to, to kind of go upstream and realize, you know, if we could really support these primary care physicians and, uh, and give them, you know, everything that they've wanted to do from, from the beginning, they just didn't always have the support or the time or the expertise or the capital to do it. If we could provide them the things that they already wanted to do, uh, then that was going to have a much better effect on the patient. So feel like indirectly um, helping the patients in the communities we're in by 100% being focused on the providers and ensuring they've got the support they need uh, to, to really be able to take care of their patients. And, and for us, most importantly, really pivot towards a new economic model that's much more aligned around keeping the patient whole and healthy and well uh, versus just treating them when they're sick. 
Eric and Craig, I, I love that uh, introduction and overview, and I couldn't agree more that you know primary care physicians are really the heartbeat of value transformation in this country. Primary care physicians are the patient's first point of contact with the health system, and they serve as the quarterback of their patient's care, connecting and coordinating other parts of the healthcare system to ensure their well-being. And primary care is really crucial to diagnosing and treating acute and chronic illnesses, preventing disease and maintaining health, collaborating with other health providers, and, and innovating and advancing knowledge through research and patient care and its delivery. PCPs also see firsthand the effects of social determinants on a person's health and well-being, and they act as a healthcare partner, educator, and navigator, often throughout a patient's lifetime. Given all this, reorienting our national healthcare priorities around primary care should be our top priority. However, we continue to see primary care in this country relegated to second-class citizenship in the medical community. In the predominant fee-for-service landscape, most primary care physicians feel frustrated and marginalized, and the medical industrial complex makes it even worse by putting a PCP on a hamster wheel where they can't keep up with the demands of a fee-for-service practice, with many seeing upwards of 30 patients a day just to keep the lights on. I'd like to know, what is your take on the current state of primary care in our country? And how is SPCP reinventing the practice paradigm for primary care physicians to position them more favorably for success in value-based care? Are you optimistic that we'll reach an envisioned future state where primary care is able to reach its full potential in this national movement to value-based care? Dan, that was brilliant and well-stated. And I'll answer the second question first. Yes, I think that we're moving in that direction. And the first question, you know, in terms of how is primary care set up to move in that direction? I think it depends on, you know, for our country, it depends on kind of the market that you're in. In some parts of the country, it feels like we're a little further along that journey. Primary care is a more robust and a more funded piece of the puzzle, of the healthcare puzzle. In some parts of the country, you can see primary care physicians, you know, the, the total spend for healthcare, where primary care physicians are getting over 10% of the total spend. And that, in my view, is putting the resources where they belong, kind of in the, putting the primary care doctors in the driver's seat of kind of how we manage those patients. And in some parts of the country, you see it down closer to 5%. And so I think that, you know, as we step into that journey in the place that we're at, so, you know, we're in the Southeast and we... We deliberately named ourselves Southeast Primary Care Partners for that reason, because we think that there's just a tremendous opportunity in this part of the country to really increase the respect level, the value, sort of the importance of primary care in this system. Uh, and, and we're moving in them in that direction. And the folks that are joining us, the, the doctors that are joining us and becoming a part of our team are joining us by large measure for that reason, right? We put primary care physicians at the top of the food chain as opposed to at the bottom. They're not relegated to second-class citizenship. They're, in fact, first-class citizens. They're driving everything for us and for our patients, and we're there to support them. We have conversations with them on a daily basis. So, you know, it's kind of what Craig talked about earlier, where the physicians have wanted to do these things their entire career, but they haven't had the resources or the wherewithal to do it. We're providing those resources. We're providing the support. We're providing the staff. We're providing the technology to help them do the things that they've always wanted to do. And it's really making an impact on our patients in terms of our quality and care scores. And I, our physicians really, really value being a part of our group. I think the latest survey that we had with our group was that we had an 80% NPS score, which is something that I've never seen in any of the groups I've ever been a part of. The physicians really like it here. They feel respected and they think that we're doing good things. And to, to the credit of our team, they're also, you know, really driving those things. So we have regular meetings with our physicians. They're helping us create our strategy. They're driving our strategy. They're creating all the care plans. Um, you know, they're really focused on not just delivering care, but also driving the value that they've always wanted to drive in the system and the communities that we're in. Yeah. And Dan, I think that's a really good question. And hundred percent agree. When you look at all the data, primary care is the one specialty um, that when it's introduced to a community or to a population, it actually increases the life expectancy while decreasing cost. Uh, and there are other countries, and you look at other, especially OECD countries that uh, are doing a better job managing healthcare costs, they're doing that by robustly supporting primary care. The U.S. health system is not 
evolved to that level yet. And, and we really, maybe as, as optimistic or, or audacious as it sounds, we, we really feel that companies like SPCP are what are going to move that needle um, and put primary care physicians back at the center of the ecosystem, really where we believe they belong. So Eric and Craig, and, and considering the transformation opportunity of massively powerful primary care within a value-based purchasing construct, you both are firm believers that the fullest potential of healing can only be realized through physician autonomy and independence. And in the paradigm of fee-for-service, which currently dominates our industry, independent PCPs are extremely cash-strapped. They're struggling to remain financially solvent. I mean, as, as Daniel mentioned earlier, they're on this hamster wheel in the current model, and they're, they're trying to run faster and faster by cranking out more transactional E&M encounters just to generate enough revenue. And as the hassles have become worse, many PCPs are jumping ship. They're selling their practices to larger enterprises like hospitals and large corporate entities and PE-backed physician aggregators. When the AMA had a, a survey uh, that came out and only 32% of primary care physicians right now work in a private practice outside of a corporatized care delivery business model. And you both are out there advocating for primary care uh, to be in a full risk value-based model that's driven by the independent spirit of, of being a, a physician, entrepreneur, and leader. And I wanted to ask you both if you know, what are your thoughts about this corporatization of primary care? I mean, if I'm an independent, financially distressed PCP out there just trying to survive, what should I be thinking about in terms of financial viability? And how should I balance the options that can support the continued existence of the independent primary care model? The independent spirit is everything, right? We believe, and our motto is, and what you'll see in our billboards that we put up around the state and in Alabama and other places, independent, but never alone, right? We we think that one of our value propositions for physicians, one of our key value propositions for physicians is that we're not going in there to try to change the way they practice or to modify the kinds of things that they do for their patients. We're just there to supplement and to support and provide resources and provide technology. We're not changing their templating. We're not changing, you know, kind of the way they think about viewing the patients. Each one of our physicians that joins our group is an independent thinker, and we want them to stay that way. And one of the and one of the things that we love about um, our ability to do this with our physician partners, and, and it's based on a lot of feedback that we've gotten from them, is that we also see whole, the whole patient, right? So we're not, you know, whereas some of the companies that are out there doing this aggregator work or you know, building an independent practice the, the way we are, are out there focused exclusively on Medicare. We're we're focused on all aspects of patient care. Our physicians join us because they're family practitioners. And they want to stay family practitioners. So we're not forcing them to change the panel that they're seeing. Um, we're not, you know, focused exclusively on Medicare. We, we are trying to do value-based care, both on the commercial side and on the Medicare side, and also moving into the Medicaid side. And we're really focused in areas of the country where a lot of the bigger groups don't go. So we're, we spend a lot of time in the rural communities where I think there's even a bigger need for primary care than there is in some of the urban communities. And we're bringing primary care there. So if, they, if it doesn't exist, we're finding ways to bring it there. We're incentivizing providers and mid-levels to go into those communities to provide care for patients that wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. So I'm really excited about what we're doing. It's a passion for us and our, our entire team. Um, we've got an amazing culture of physicians and executives on our team that are there just to drive exactly the point that you've described is drive that independent spirit, let physicians continue to practice independently but be a part of a larger independent group um, and convey and sometimes convey ownership of their existing, you know, primary care practice that they've been struggling with to, to try to manage, convey some of that ownership into the larger group to where they become owners of this bigger group, this bigger independent group as well. Eric, I think it's a good question. And it's definitely one that, that as I'm going throughout the Southeast and, and meeting with, with physicians are, I'm constantly being asked. And, and my advice is, you know, especially as a primary care provider, don't necessarily use a broad brush and, and try to categorize, okay, well, you're just a hospital or you're just a aggregator, but really look at, at the culture of the team, the leadership of the team, the, the strategy, the long-term strategy, where is this going? And, and as a primary care provider, that needs to be, if, if it's not oriented towards really robust total cost of care revenue models, 
then it, it's probably not the best long-term strategy for a PCP. Um, and there are some, you know, it's few, but there are some hospital systems that are oriented that way. There are some PE-backed aggregators that are oriented that way. So, so there are, as a, as a PCP, you really need to be looking at, you know, what's the long-term strategy and, and how do I fit into that? And, and more importantly, is this what's going to help me be able to take best care of my patients long-term? And so, and that partnership can look in multiple different ways. You can be a partner via joining an ACO or a CIN. You can be a partner being, as, as Eric said, conveying your ownership into a large organization where you get equity and, and you're an owner now in a, a larger group. Um, or you can receive uh, support through IPAs. It, it, there's just varying degrees of this, and it really is specific to what you're, you need as an individual for your lifestyle, what your practice needs to be able um, to be set up for the future. And then most importantly, is it a partnership or um, is it a uh, uh, more of a, a grab of your practice um, and then trying to fit your practice into an existing system? And those are the questions that really the, the PCPs themselves have to have to answer for themselves on a case by case basis. Gentlemen, you've you've alluded to some of this, and I want to go a little bit further and, and talk about, you know, despite the central role that PCPs play in keeping us healthy, they're really facing enormous obstacles to success, and they lack the necessary contracts with payers, they lack time, and capital, and access to expertise to assume responsibility for their patients' total needs. And so they're burning out in a system that, as we've said, rewards volume and not quality. And healthcare management services organizations like yours could help the PCP transition to value-based care by investing that financial and other resources and moving physician partners off the fee-for-service treadmill. And MSOs dedicated to building collaborative networks of independent physicians can help PCPs deliver the very best care for patients and align their practices economics with the health outcomes of the patients that they desire. And by connecting PCPs to that operational, technical, and peer support they need to deliver high-quality primary care, something magical can happen. It's possible for PCPs to deliver better health outcomes for their communities and create a level of empowerment that can serve as a flywheel for accelerated transitions to value-based care models. Can you describe the population health capabilities that MSOs generally provide the primary care community? And how does your MSO differentiate itself when compared to the others that are out there serving primary care physicians in the value-based sector? Good question, Dan. I think when you talk about services, I think you could you can bucket them into three broad categories. It's the uh, FTE, the actual physical person support that they provide via care management, pharmacists, social workers, uh, and we provide all of that. Um, so so it's incredibly important to look at the patient. And, and look at the patient or the physician-patient encounter that happens within the four walls of the clinic as just the beginning, and then trying to build a model of care around how, how do we take care of the patient once they leave the clinic and they're back in their community, they're back in their homes, um, and they're trying to make healthy decisions, but they don't always have the resources. So we, we provide that through regular touch points with the patients. When the patient leaves the clinic, we're gonna, we're gonna have contact with them three, four, five times maybe before they come into the clinic the next month, especially if they're a patient with a, diagnose, a new diagnosis or a patient with multiple diagnoses that they're trying to, to really understand how to manage um, within the community. So, so those resources are expensive. Those resources have to be trained. There has to be a physical model for those resources to be, to be working off of. And that's hard for an independent physician to be able to do. So groups like ours uh, provide that um, and kind of provide that expertise. And, and it's, it's something that they can readily tap into um, and see immediate ROI in terms of what their patients, um, the, the level of care their patients are receiving. The second bucket here would be uh, the technology. So we did a good job getting to EMRs uh, through carrots and sticks and all of the other. We we got everybody on an EMR for the most part, and you know, so so we have data, but there's zero way for an independent primary care provider who has uh, purchased a a you know. The, the EMR that they could afford at the time uh, that has very little interoperability with the EMR that the local hospital is using or very little interoperability with the EMR that the specialist is using. And so groups like ours will, will invest in partnerships um, specific to technology 
that's going to ingest claims data. It's going to help stratify uh, and, and collate that claims data and then stratify the population so that we can go back to the PCP. We can hand them a report and say, hey, Doctor, we, we know of your panel of X amount of patients. Here are how many um, are real high risk. Did you know that Miss Smith was in the emergency room 45 times last year. And that's, and you can see, and it's, it's a fun, it's a fun part of my job when you can go and have that conversation, you see the light bulb go off and they say, well, that's just because Miss Smith has seasonal allergies and, and, you know, doesn't have a good AC system. And then that's the third portion for us. So we, we have access to capital. We have access to um, resources that are really hard to get as an independent group. And a lot of that comes in the way we're able to contract with, with payers. Um, and what I really enjoy about the value-based contracting side is it's a partnership with the payer. It's, it's an alignment between the payer and the provider for the most part, and that we're, we're mutually aligned and trying to drive the same outcomes. And for those reasons, we can do things that, you know, before were really just out of the realm of possibility for the independent providers, like helping with some social determinant needs, a fridge and AC, things that, that, you know, make a huge difference in the long-term health of the patients. But when you're living day to day, trying to see 30, 40, 50 patients a day on the fee-for-service hamster wheel, it's just really hard to think about, well, how would I ever go, you know, really provide for what, for what Ms. Smith needs to keep her out of the emergency room 40 plus times next year. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to that, as, as Craig alluded to, we have a really good relationship with our payer partners, right? So we're, we're in fact, we're their best friends. So if you think about trying to create value in the system and trying to reduce costs, trying to improve quality, those are the same values and priorities that the payers have. And so when they're looking for partners, whereas when you're an independent practice and you're trying to reach out to a payer and trying to get them to listen to you and say, hey, can we create something together? You know, you're... the the leverage that you have, the volume of patients you have, even if you're really at the top of your game in terms of providing quality, doing great condition identification, all that kind of stuff, it's very difficult to have those conversations. But when you have a larger scale like we do and you've got 20,000 or 50,000 at-risk lives and you're having these conversations with payers about not just their Medicare, but their commercial products, et cetera, then you have the ability to really create some really innovative things. And I think our group has done a tremendous job working with a handful of payers and more to come on creating those models that are going to be really um, valuable both to our patients in terms of helping to create quality in their lives, both from a health perspective and also a social determinist perspective, but also for our physicians, because it allows us to do really interesting, meaningful things by investing in technology, by investing in those resources that Craig talked about that allows us to help support them. So, uh, you know, and what makes us different to, to the other part of your question, what makes us different than the other MSOs out there? I think I mentioned that earlier. A couple of things I think that make us very different. Number one, we're not driving our physicians into a specific model of care. We're providing resources, we're providing support, and we're helping them along the way with whatever help they think they need um, to try to get them to the best outcomes for their patients. And that's not always the case with some of the MSOs out there. Um, we're also very focused on all of the patients. So we're not just focused on Medicare, but we're focused on you know, the 25-year-old patients, the 50-year-old patients, you know, the 18-year-old patients, and in some cases, even pediatric patients to try to get the best outcomes for all of the physicians panel. So we're really supporting them on all of their patients. And I think that's unique. And then finally, we're heavily focused on not just the rural, not just the urban communities, but on the rural communities. So we're providing those same level of resources to the physicians that we have across our entire footprint. And some of that is in the most rural parts of Georgia and Alabama, and moving into the other states that we're, you know, that we're focused on. Um, whereas a lot of times, those physicians in those communities don't get the the same level of support that the ones in the urban communities do. Well, in this support model, you mentioned the need for an information technology infrastructure, and that's so crucial to really create the, the transformation in primary care and meet the needs of the patients. And, you know, I, I know you're really focused on supporting patients throughout the care continuum and really understanding the medical complexity and their social challenges and being able to leverage analytics platforms and, and help that drive and support your population health management strategies and you know, you mentioned earlier how the technology is helping you 
identify and address populations that have a disproportionately higher burden of disease. And it allows you to implement specific individualized interventions that can mitigate the the costly complications that are so prevalent in our, in our current model and really drive value-based care. And, you know, we're seeing now in, in the consumer marketplace for primary care, a recognition of the opportunity. And, you know, there's a transformation happening, you know, with primary care groups out there using e-visits and telehealth and asynchronous messaging and other technologies to, to build off of the trusting relationships that they have their patients and, and bring together uh, the interdisciplinary team to, to better support population health. And as I think about technology, I mean, it really seems like a double-edged sword. I mean, you can especially see that with uh, electronic health records that haven't really delivered on the promise of uh, clinic workflow optimization and, and efficiency. And we really need these emerging technologies to focus on data capture and reporting. So these clinicians can fulfill their calling rather than being forced to be these uh, glorified billing clerks and and subject to that measurement industrial complex that we always hear about and uh, that doesn't necessarily drive quality improvement. So I wanted to ask you both, you know, as we're emerging from this pandemic and we're seeking to implement new models of primary care finance and delivery, what practice level technologies should PCPs be considering to improve workflow and documentation and maximize revenue and improve their clinical decision-making and, and ultimately help them better understand the needs of their patient population? So that's a great question. I think there's a couple of things. And, and to your point, technology is, is everything. Without the technology that we have today that we can deploy into our practices and to our physicians at the point of care, uh, we wouldn't be able to do the kinds of things that we're doing. Uh, because, you know, as, as you said, um, with the EMRs, and there's dozens of them, if not hundreds of them, that exist out there. The one thing that they don't do for the most part is they don't tie into everybody else's data. So when you're in a primary care office and you're looking at your EMR, what you typically see in your EMR is what you put there, right? From the previous visit or from the visit before that or from the visit before that. So what goes into the EMR in your office is really what you're seeing from your practice alone. And in order to quarterback um, as Dan said earlier, in order to quarterback the care of these patients, you really have to have a more holistic view of what's going on. And so the technology that we deploy, there's really a couple of key aspects to it that we deploy and we recommend that our physicians tap into, even if they're not part of our group. One is it is a claims aggregator, right? That looks at all of the claims that are going on outside of our system and then brings those claims to bear into our analytics tools and shows us a more holistic picture of the, of the patient. So if they're being seen by an orthopedic surgeon at Northside Hospital, those claims, those activities get rolled back into our system so it gets shown to our provider so they have a, a view of what happened. Or if they had an imaging, they had an MRI taken at, at Wellstar Hospital or one of the other places in town, all that information will go back into the system so we have a perspective of what's going on with that patient. That's really critical. And we even have, in the same vein, we even have ties to hospitals so we get to see more real-time ER visits, urgent care visits, things like that, they get into our system pretty quickly. So that's one aspect of technology that we really have to have in order to make this value-based journey work. The second piece is how do you take that technology and then bring it up at the point of care for the physician? So when your patient's showing up in your office and they haven't had their, and she hasn't had her mammogram in the past year that is recommended by the guidelines, it'll pop up on the screen using a technology that we have and that we recommend there's a lot of them like it, but we recommend a technology like this for all of our physicians. It pops this up on the screen to say, okay, here's the gap in care. We recommend that you get this set up and schedule an appointment for her. It gets looked at by our physician. It gets looked at by our front office staff. And so we're able to see those things real time during the patient encounter. So there's the analytics piece, and then there's the piece that happens during the patient encounter that are both really critical to making this value-based journey work. Well, gentlemen, I want to shift gears a little bit and dive into something that you've alluded to earlier. And, and let's talk about payment models specifically. You know, the move to value-based care can only unlock primary care's potential if we shift more of the burden of financial risk from payers to providers. You know, as mentioned, fee-for-service has never been right for primary care because it's based on a service delivery model that rewards reactive, transactional, and minimally functional transactions. And the move toward value-based care 
in a prospective payment model upends the way we've historically defined primary care delivery. It's no longer just the time spent in an exam room or on a telehealth call. By putting greater emphasis on outcomes instead of appointments, care can extend beyond regular office hours and real-time interactions. Providers can lean on teams and technologies to support patients with care coordination, social services, and other resources that address social determinants of health. And incentivized to create patient value instead of just patient volume, PCPs can spend the time necessary to build connections and trust with their patients. And that produces better outcomes and decreases total health care costs for patients and payers. And the evidence for prospective payment in primary care is overwhelmingly positive. But there's a general reluctance by both payers and PCPs to, collect, to collectively tackle the challenges of change. Can you share your views on the state of the value-based care movement with regard to the scale and proliferation of prospective payment models? And, and are you optimistic that CMS will reach its goal of having all Medicare beneficiaries in an accountable care relationship by 2030? And what role will prospective payment models play in that? Prospective payment models are absolutely game-changing, right? In order to get access to the resources you need to be able to do these things. So the technology that we talked about earlier, those things aren't cheap. That's why it's hard for an independent solo practitioner to be able to invest in this stuff because it's pretty pricey and pretty expensive to be able to deliver it and do it. And you have to aggregate it. You have to have resources that kind of manage it, watch it, look for trends, help support it. And an independent person can't do that. And in order to get the resources to, to invest in a necessary way, prospective payment models are really like game changing, right? They allow us to take those dollars, invest in dollars that we know are going to drive value in our system. For example, if we're seeing, you know, if we look at our system and this is just as a real time example, we look at our, at our patient mix for our MSSP population and we see that about 35% of our um, emergency room visits are unnecessary according to the data. So then we can put, because of that analytics and because of the patients that we know are seeing that they go into the ER on a regular basis or more than once or twice in an unnecessary way, we're able to then put resources against trying to support those patients and staying out of the ER or going into urgent care or putting in home care visits. But we wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't have the, the dollars to support that with our in-house team and our technology along the way. So that's prospective payment models are pretty important and we support them heavily. Do I think that we will have, um, do I think CMS is gonna have all Medicare patients in an ACO model by year 2030? I think that's pretty unrealistic. Um, will it be a pretty high number? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're working on that. I think it makes a lot of sense for the patients and the physicians that are participating for it to happen. Um, we support it 100%. We're trying to get there, but I think there's just a lot of gaps that um, are not going to be completely filled in by then. I, I am encouraged. I think when we speak specifically to prospective payment models, and, and Dan, you hit it, it's, it's imperative for this shift, especially in the primary care world, um, that you do receive a meaningful portion of the premium dollar prospectively. Um, and I am encouraged by some of the new models. You know, Nothing's perfect, but some of the models coming out of CMMI via REACH and, and maybe some of the, the diagnoses or disease-specific models that are paying a, a significant portion prospectively. It's not just a, what you get on the back end in terms of shared savings. I'm, I'm very encouraged by that, and I think that's going to do nothing but um, empower the primary care physician to continue to make that shift. I agree with Eric. I don't know that it's going to happen on the timetable um, that we or CMS would like for it to, and that's just because it's most of the legacy players in the health ecosystem are still you know, the, the, the economics are still very much against them moving towards any sort of shared savings or, or value-based models. So there, it's going to be a, a tough move as we've been doing over the last decade plus to, to try to continue to push that. And I don't know that 2030 is realistic, but I am encouraged by some of the new models that are coming out specifically the prospective payments. As we talk about payment models and value-based care, you know, a discussion would really be insufficient if we didn't talk about health equity. I mean, after the pandemic and the social justice movement we've had over the last few years, uh, equity now is 
really being integrated into the health value equation. And we've seen how that has reshaped how we're approaching the design and ideation and delivery of these new payment models uh, to really uh, fix the nation's healthcare system. And in the two states that you're in currently, Georgia and Alabama, there's some major challenges with health inequities. I mean, Georgia has well-documented health disparities in cultural competence, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, kidney disease, cancer, stroke, HIV. Um, Alabama similarly has a lot of challenges, especially in the rural areas that are facing a barrage of health disparities, such as maternal death rates, which are the third worst of all the states in the country. You know, Can you both share your views on this historic moment that we have in value-based care to redefine the movement through payment model redesign? to include health equity as a centerpiece. And how do you think this change will impact integrated primary care models like yours that are participating in downside risk arrangements that will be now held accountable for the reporting of metrics to demonstrate an impact on both population health and the elimination of health disparities? That's, that is an absolutely fantastic question. And it goes back to the question that you just asked about a prospective payment system. Here's one of the most important, beautiful aspects of a prospective payment system that um, sometimes I think gets undiscussed, right? One of the things about a prospective payment system is, is when the money is flowing to the healthcare aggregator or primary care group or you know MSO, it allows us to do things in a way that makes sense for the patient. In other words, we can invest um, if, if a patient is struggling with food insecurity or they're struggling with being able to keep their house warm or they're struggling with even being able to have a place to live. The payment system allows us to do the things valuable to the patient that would not have necessarily been paid for otherwise. And so we can invest in those things, home health care, um, having a nurse go out and visit our indigent population, indigent you know, underprivileged population that doesn't have access to transportation, visiting them on a regular basis because it makes sense, not just for the patient, but for the system. And it allows us to keep costs out of the system. It allows us to keep them healthy. We're really focused on that. As I mentioned before, we have a pretty heavy emphasis on our rural population where a lot of these folks are. Um, and it's really important to us. And it's a big part of the passion that we bring to our work every day is trying to be able to serve this population in a way that also serves, you know, our country in terms of the healthcare system. I know it's, I know it's really important to Craig. Whenever we talk about this as an organ, you know, as a team and an organization, you know, Craig is kind of the heart of our group, and so I'm excited to hear what Craig has to say about this because I know this is like right at the center of his of his core. Yeah, yeah, I think you said it really well, there, Eric. Is when you can get the economics right and the dollars are agnostic to whether or not this is a, a minority population or an underprivileged population. And, and it puts the onus on the provider to ensure that they are caring for the entire population, um, regardless of race, religion, creed, gender, uh, all of the above. So I, I think it, it's, you know, I look at it not to be overly simplistic, but, but really as an economics issue, um, being the, the most, what I get most optimistic about us actually achieving any the health inequities that exist. If you think about it just in a community, when a provider is only paid on the activity they do and they're not at risk for the patients that don't come into the center, then that's going to just naturally, despite everyone's best intentions, generate inequities because there are patients who cannot get to the facility. There are patients who, who do not have the resources to get to the doctor um, or when they're there to really have uh, get the care that they need or, or the uh, ability to speak um, their needs. And so that economic system creates the inequities. When that provider or that system or, or that entity is now at risk and responsible for that patient, they're going to go to that patient and they're going to find that patient and give them um, and help them understand what they need and help them understand the questions that need to be asked. We're a long ways away from that. But that's, I think, where we're headed, and we and you see glimpses of it in some of the communities that we're in, and some of the communities around the country. So that's really exciting to me, um, and uh, and I think it's something that you know it's it's it it sounds a little counterintuitive to talk dollars and cents when you're talking about health equality, but I think in order for us to really have a true path to to creating some sort of health equity, um, it does have to be through these economic models. And then, as Eric said. You know, just a personal passion for mine, and something that that I think 
in the health inequity discussion sometimes gets overlooked more than it should is the uh, health inequities of, of patients that live in rural areas. You just look at, at hospital closures over the last two years and how many of those were rural, sometimes critical access hospitals um, that were serving in, in a lot of ways, doing a really good job of serving the needs of their communities, um, but, the, uh, but they weren't able to keep the doors open because of the, the fee-for-service model that they were operating in. And so we're really interested in thinking a lot about how do we how do we bring this value-based care? What, what can this, this total cost of care prospective payment model do for populations that are living in rural areas, um, especially if you can put a, a really well-supported primary care provider with a clinic that's purpose-built or 100% or oriented towards ensuring that that whole patient is, is happy, healthy, and well, um, and, and taking care of all of their needs, not just you know, treating for strep or treating for flu or, or doing those activity-based things that historically um, have been what, what's happened in those communities. So I think it's exciting. I think there's a huge opportunity there. Um, and I think it, it all orients back towards how do we have a more equitable health system for all patients. Gentlemen, let's conclude our conversation today by talking about the future of Southeast Primary Care Partners. You have an aspiration to become the largest primary care group in the Southeast by attributed lives, premium managed, and value-based care performance. And last year was all about setting the foundation through attribution growth and the development of population health capabilities. This year is about refining your model at scale by expanding partnerships, growing in value-based care maturity in the Medicare program, and developing more enhanced sophistication with your coding and quality performance programs. And 2024 and beyond will be all about optimization of the full continuum in your clinical partnerships, seeking a fully integrated care model that can confidently take on full capitation risk and Medicare Advantage. What is your leadership philosophy as you guide strategy and execution for the future? And how will you be able to replicate your model at scale so that you can succeed in new markets in the Southeast? I think the beautiful thing about what we're trying to do is that you know, even though it's hard, um, even though it's you know, 14, 16 hours a day for our team that's focused on trying to do this within for our physicians, um, it's just a lot of fun because we're out there um, giving our primary care physicians what they've always wanted, and that's respect, support, and resources. And so as we're thinking about replicating our model, really it's just about, our model is really pretty simple. It's about going out there and doing those things for the physician that they want us to do. And it's not about changing them. Our model, you know, our model of care sits in our home office in, in terms of our analytics capabilities, the technology that we're deploying, the training tools that we're providing, all that kind of stuff. But it's really not that, it's really not that challenging to take it to another practice when we're not going into that practice and saying, hey, physician, you're going to have to change your practice patterns in order to, to accommodate what we think is best. Like we think that you went to school to learn what was best and you're the one that has that, you know, has a perspective for your patients and your community that's better than ours. And we just want to support you with your perspective and your tech and, and your expertise and leverage best practices, you know, share experiences with each other in that, in that perspective. The one thing that becomes a little challenging when you're moving into new states is, you know, a lot of times you have to set up new contracting mechanisms, et cetera. And so the capabilities that you build in terms of pay relationships, the expertise, and the performance that you have on the payer context that you've built, you know, in Georgia as we move into Alabama or in Alabama as we move into South Carolina and into Tennessee, we can leverage those expertise and those performances to say, hey, we can do those things again in the new communities. Um, and the main reason why is because we're just not asking our physicians to change a lot. We're just there to support them. And they all, without question, and you, you can see them on our website talking about it, about how they like being a part of our group. Um, without question, they all like it and um, they're all engaged and they're all excited about, you know, being a part of this journey with us. That's, that's, that's the fun part. That's the part that makes it easy. That's the part that makes us get out of bed every day and go to work, you know, really trying to do great things for our physicians and our staff and our communities. Dan, when you talk about specific leadership philosophies or, or perspectives, Eric hit it. I mean, we all especially at the executive level here at the MSO, we all try to lead from a place of empathy. And, and what I mean by that is, is 
whether they're a family practitioner, an internal med um, that has a acute care clinic, um, they all are are chose their profession because they want to take really good care of the whole patient. I've not met a primary care provider who chose to be a primary care provider because they couldn't be a specialist. They chose to be a primary care provider because they, they valued that patient provider relationship and that they, they feel like, and they, and they have the decades of experience to show it, that they really understand what their patients need and, and they just need the resources and support and the bandwidth to be able to provide that. And so we come in from a place, not a place of here's, here's what you have to do, open the page book, you know, open your playbook to page five and execute there. It's much more, what are the things that you've wanted to do in your community and a rural town in Georgia? The needs of that population are going to be very, very different from a clinic that we have in an in, in upper scale area of downtown Atlanta. And so we have to go in from a place of empathy and say, what are the needs that you have? What have you always wanted to do, but you've not been able to provide? And then, and then come in and bring that. Now we will bring our best practices. We'll bring care model in terms of here's how we, we think about chronic care management. Here are the touch points that we have with the patients. But by and large part, we really want to empower those physicians to do um, what they've always wanted to do and what they, what they in a lot of ways are already doing. We're just t- taking it and allowing them to do it at a larger scale. Well, Eric and Craig, I, I commend you for the great work that you've done so far in building this uh, population health MSO and in creating the empowerment needed in the primary care community in the Southeast. Uh, you know, I, I'm excited to see what the future looks like for Southeast primary care partners. Um, really uh, enjoyed our conversation today, and I hope we can stay connected and, and uh, stay apprised of your progress as you're doing the great work and leading a transformation. Eric and Dan, thanks for the time. We appreciate the opportunity to talk about our passion and our company and our physicians. It's been great. We, we really appreciate you. Yeah, and Eric and Dan, let me, let me just say thank you for what you all do at the Institute um, and, and what you all are doing is trying to push this forward. Um, I mean, the title of the podcast is fitting. Um, we're in a race to, to get this right. And, uh, and we, you know, we feel proud to be able to be part of a company that's that's seeking that earnestly, but but really appreciate everything you all are doing um, to help advance that and, and push that forward. Because without organizations like yours, you can feel a little bit like a voice in the wilderness out here. Uh, and so it's it's helpful to be able to to read the the work you're putting out, listen to the podcast to, to, and the other resources that you've got to um, feel like we're not alone in this journey, and that there are others that are are working through it with us. Well, we appreciate that support and yeah, it, you know, we're here to, to really help accelerate this uh, transition to value-based care and, you know, it wouldn't be possible with leaders like, you know, you both. So uh, yeah, again, I, I, I really uh, wish you all the best of luck as you're uh, out there to really win this race to value. 